Hello and welcome to Navigating Nursing. I am your host, Laura Whitehead, a registered adult nurse, a critical care nurse, qualified lecturer and fellow of the Higher Education Academy. And I'm joined today by Adrian Jugdoyle, the Director of Programme for Mental Health at Middlesex University and a previous advanced nurse practitioner, CQC inspector and NICE reviewer. Hello Adrian, thank you so much for joining today. Hi Laura, uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm going to take you right back to the beginning. Did you always know that you wanted to be a nurse? Actually, I didn't know what I wanted to be up until about the age of, I'll say 19. So I was never the most academic, but my parents are both nurses. And so my mum and dad says, well, you can't sit at home all day and study. You need to get a job. And my dad was working in a care home, extra shifts. And he said, they need a cleaner. Come along. And then my mum said, look, coming to the hospital, because she was a ward manager, be a healthcare assistant. I don't care what you do, but you can do this and you can guarantee getting some money because you, you can join the bank. I did that. First shift was on my mum's ward where she wasn't working, which was good. And the first patient I met was last offices. And I walked oh, in no. and had to do that. And it was, it was done the right way. It was done the most dignified way. And then as time went by, you realised, this isn't difficult. As long as you're sincere and you're nice, I could do that. So I went away for the weekend to see some old friends. And on the on the coach back, I said to myself, I enjoy work. Why not become a nurse? And in those days, uh, so this was in the mid-90s, you applied for the UKCC and you got the book and you had to read the book to find which universities you went to. And at that point, I never looked back. And for me, I spent most of my time on, on general medicine. So words such as diabetes or COAD in those days were commonplace. And I would always ask my mum and dad, what do they mean? And I, they had all the dictionaries. So I don't know if you remember, in the old days, all nurses had a very small pocket-sized dictionary. I borrowed theirs and was learning that way as well. So you had it from both sides. I had it from both sides. But they never told me. That was a strange thing. And I remember this argument with my mum saying, you can't force me to be a nurse. I'll never be a nurse. Uh, 25. <laughs> She's <laughs> very smug now. <laughs> can't yeah. I? <laughs> but yeah, they never pushed. The only thing was they knew that every 18, 19 year old was obsessed about getting money. Hmm. And I was getting £4 cleaning a, a nursing home or I can get £4.75 an hour uh, for doing bank shifts. And that was the, that was the motivation at the time. Because then I could sp- I could buy records, clothes, and that was it. So the motivation wasn't there with caring for people to begin with; it was just the money. But you met great people. Very odd uh, start to my nursing career. Good uh, as any, yeah. <laughs> and here yeah. you are. So you originally trained as an adult nurse, and then you went on to do your mental health training at Thames Valley Uni. Did you always know that you wanted to do mental health training after your adult? No. So well, yes and no. So the, my dad would my dad's. Um, RMN and the old-fashioned SEN. Mm-hmm. My mum was at SEN and then did her com- uh, conversion into RGN. So it was always there. But during my nurse training, I wanted to do A&E, but never done it before. Uh, but as I moved through my nurse training, it was probably my final placement was A&E. And then I remember patients and staff saying, this is for you, you need to come back here. But I don't know if you remember, Laura, you were always told never make your first job a specialist job, make it a general yeah, job. be general. And so even though I applied for A&E, I didn't get it. And they said, come back in six months and we'll try and get you a job. And I went to Harefield, which was yeah. the, the complete wrong thing. I was going to say the most specialist place ever. <laughs> um, and then I 
I remember there's this shift, and I like the hair feels. So we had all the CPAP, BiPAP, everything there. So that bit was interesting. But I remember this patient went into retention, and none of the nurses knew what to do. And I'd done bank shifts in the local general hospital, and I knew how to catheterize. And I said, well, if someone supervises me, I'll call catheterize, and you can sign it off. Oh, we can't do that here. And at that point, I said, no, I don't want to be in a place where I'm told what I can't do. Yeah, why? Isn't it strange how in nursing we limit ourselves and each other sometimes? Yeah. And I understand it's a speciality. We've we've both worked in specialities. Um, You're told to focus on your speciality and don't branch out. But someone in urine retention is not abnormal. No, no, not at all. Yeah. But we are talking about the last century, though, so things have moved on. And at that point, I said, no, this is not for me. So I applied for a job in acute medicine. And my dad at the same time said to me, Consider mental health, because if you're already saying that you don't want to be specialised, why not be as broad as you can? So my my heart was in the acute medicine, but my head was already going down the mental health route by saying biopsychosocial. People don't become unwell just purely physically. What about the stress, the anxiety, etc.? And then I started getting fascinated with liver disease and the, the darker side of acute medicine. And in that way, I think I fell into the, the mental health part because why do people commit to, uh, try and commit suicide? Why were people taking overdoses? Why do people get addicted to drugs and alcohol? Plus the institutionalised side of the hospital. For me and you and all the other nurses and student nurses, hospital is safe. We know the rules. We know we do the obs at certain times. We know we have to do the, ur- the hourly urines. For, for the patient, no. It was alien to them, and you saw little bits of stress. And so very quickly after I had that floundering experience of, I don't know enough, I need to know more, my needing more was to go and do my mental health training. I just finished my top-up degree. And then you realise, actually, it's not often what you say or how you say, it's the ability to listen. And often as an adult nurse, we don't listen. We talk, we hear, but we don't listen. And I think that's the bit that pushed me over the edge to go, actually, do your mental health training. You don't need to stick in it, but you, it will give you the broad base, almost having two foot feet on the ground when you make decisions. And when I was talking about decisions, I was talking about clinical decisions. I wasn't talking about managerial decisions. But after a while, you realise that helps you in your managerial roles as well. I see, because my, my clinical jobs are the neurotrauma intensive care at the Royal London. So a lot of attempted suicides, a lot of violent crime, a lot of random accidents too, yeah. and car crashes and things. And yeah, I think with that point of view, you feel like we know our routines, it's comfortable for us. We outline the, the treatment plan and the care and what we're going to do. And we have our rules. That, for us, it's a very comfortable environment, isn't it? We know, we know that's our ordinary day of work. I think sometimes you forget how scary and stressful and intimidating that is for the patients yeah. I think as well with from a mental health point of view we'd wait for the psych team to come and review but apart from that I think a lot of the adult nurses would find that side of the patient care really out of their comfort zone yeah and I think the problem with adult nursing and I'm, I'm criticizing my background here and I think we both know this often we make ourselves too busy to listen and when we're not we can easily I don't know I don't, when we admit patients it takes 10 15 20 minutes you can do a lot of psychosocial work whilst doing your assessment. And I think that alleviates, no, it hides the our house, their house type of situation where they can actually tell you their anxieties. And I remember, and this is wrong, and it's I still it hurts me when I say this. How many times in AE we used to think in our heads, and even people used to say it, this isn't a hotel, this is a hospital. 
expecting the patients to follow our rules. Well, actually, no, it, they're unwell. It's probably one of the worst days of their life because they're out of control. Our role as a nurse should be to support and guide. And you can only do that by listening. And I was part of that mechanism as well, where, yeah, they should be listening to us. After a while of growing up, you realise we could, I can make this so much easier just by being a lot, not being slower because you're not slow, but being more receptive and being more reflective when I'm working. I think there's, there's that view, isn't there, that you're right, if you talk and listen more, then you are slower, you get less done. But actually, you don't, the output is still the same. Yeah. It's just how you go about. And I don't know about you, when you heard, when junior nurses said, oh, we're going to get this patient home. And you say, but they haven't got their keys. But how do you know? Because they told me that ages ago. Yeah, yeah. we knew that was an issue. We knew that was an issue. So you can run, but by running and getting there first doesn't mean you've got all the information. You can't build up that relationship unless you are talking and listening. And even on the general wards, one of the matrons said to me, you learn more about your patients when you're making the bed and cleaning the bedside because that's your time to talk with the patient. Mm. So that was a bit that probably led me to the idea of let's see what this mental health is. And it's still seen as a dark art, and it's not. It's, it, there are little things that probably aren't communicated properly but it was an interesting one-year course because I did the conversion course. And if anyone had an interest, anyone that's listening has an interest in mental health and adult, would you recommend to do that adult first and then do that mental health training later on? Yeah, I would say so, because what you realise is, yes, you can't have health without mental health, but without the physical health, sometimes I find that sometimes jump straight to the mental health and try and blame the physical when you actually realise they both go hand in hand. In the ideal world, uh, adult nurse perhaps first as a foundation and then top up to specialities. So if I was the health minister, that's what I'd probably say. A very heavy, common foundation, learning about everything. And I think I was fortunate in the time, and I, and I do apologise, and I always apologise to my students for this. I was privileged to be on a course where there were a lot of senior nurses, so I could always ask for help. Unfortunately, my generation of nurses, a lot of them have moved on into either management or into specialist roles. So we couldn't do that guiding and role modelling for junior staff. And I know that's a, that's a fault of the system. The system did allow us to get promoted quicker. But the support in the A&E department, when I look now at my old team, that middle area of support, supporting the shift and looking at teaching and education of the junior staff just isn't there. I'm a rusher. I always have been. Um, but I think within my career, I think I've kind of got that balance between rushing and moving on and learning and doing courses and making sure that I've been steadfast and competent in that clinical role before taking more on. So you went on to become a clinical nurse specialist in drugs and alcohol. Was that again, was that from your interest in mental health that led you to? Yeah. So my final placement was in my mental health training was the local drug and alcohol unit. That placement I fell in love with. The, the patient's the work, working with addictions, understanding not why people committed uh, committed crimes to have to take their drugs, etc. But the whole thing I found fascinating. I was able to link my cardiac knowledge with my gastro knowledge, with my diabetes knowledge. At that time, we were just moving into the new hepatitis C pandemic. Uh, the two drugs of the time were interferon and ribavirin, which were crude and nasty drugs but we were looking at trying to increase access for people with hep c into uh, liver units so i got heavily involved in that and i was able to pull all my knowledge together 
So that was, for me, probably a good job at that time. It allowed me to consolidate uh, my pace and be able to draw those links together. And actually is that perfect role, isn't it? That mix between between all of your specialities. Yeah, because as I said, the ribavirin interferon trial was a longitudinal trial looking at what were the barriers from diets from having a positive test to potential liver transplant or uh, eradication of hep C. So it was good. I was having managerial experience as well as what uh, case management. And I don't know if you can remember, a lot of nurses get fixated with blood results. And actually a blood result doesn't really tell me anything. You need to look at the bigger picture. Yeah. And trying to understand, trying to teach that to, across the mental health lot was a, a good bit of learning for me. And that's what I learned then. I'll, I'll move on in my journey because I think this is where I amalgamated both jobs. I got frustrated. I moved into management in the local hospital, did bed management for a while, which gave me an insight of how hospitals work. And I would recommend anyone six months to a year doing bed management is a good way of learning, not politics with a big P, but how the hospital works and how busy it is and whilst the media never shows how hospitals are dynamic and they're always changing you will understand about cancer weights you'll understand about if someone wants to go to theatre you're planning the you're planning things that day or the weekend before that was an amazing part of me learning management okay um, and I'd recommend anyone doing that on a night shift when you run out of beds and the AE department is almost unsafe what do I do next teaches you about management um but i got i get bored quite quick quickly and then there was this ideal job came up and it was a clinical nurse specialist for a AE department in london um working with the team to facilitate alcohol and drugs as well as doing a bit of clinical shifts i was doing my well the very early phase of the acp course so the 90 in the 21st century everyone was looking at nurse practitioners or advanced nurse practitioners but there was no role I was doing that course, so focusing being a very good clinical nurse, but also taking almost like a medical approach into how I worked. Yeah, I think there is that difference. Uh, yeah, I found from going into intensive care, especially, there's very two very different approaches. You know, nursing and the, and the medical kind of view are looking at things are very different, aren't they? I think we've kind of got that amalgamation now with the clinical nurse specialists and the advanced assessment and you know all the courses you've just mentioned, but it's still a very different perspective. And I think learning of how the medics look at things and they have a complete different list of priorities don't they in a ward round I remember them going off on this tangent and it's like well no I'm really worried about the fact that their ET tube has a cuff leak and the tube keeps going down but you're worried about the blood results from three days ago or you know whatever the worry was and I think for me it was about learning how to get those two kind of that focus aligned to be on the same path I think it's still something that does need work on. I think there's still a very big difference in nursing and medical in medical students education. I was privileged because I was on the ward round. So, and so I, I gained respect by listening, observing and understanding the two things together. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, they'd ask me my opinion on stuff. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, now I've crossed this. this yeah, path. you've crossed the, yeah. If you get respect from the medics and the, and the medics can understand where you're working and you have collaboration, you, we can do things a lot better. So and it doesn't need to be this divide of you're a nurse and I'm a doctor or I'm in charge because I'm the consultant and you're not. Actually, when you get rid of those kind of boundaries, the yeah. care is seamless, isn't it? Yeah, and, and so that for me helped me consolidate both clinical management, clinical leadership, a bit of research, but also gave me the confidence that I'd actually 
not reached it because I'm never going to reach it, but I've re got this level of competence where actually the consultant would listen to me. Since being a uh, CQC inspector, can you just outline a little bit about your role? Yeah, so I was fortunate to, I, I met someone who was a CQC inspector, he says, come along, try and do that. I applied, got the job. And it made me realise that every hospital is similar but different. But it also made me realise that when we get the dreaded phone call from management the CQC are here, we all behave in the same way. Yeah. <laughs> but, it's the panic. Even you say the word, you yeah. get a bit stressed. <laughs> but from the CQC inspector point of view, with being, have been clinical, having clinical expertise, you don't look at what you, the nurses are trying to hide. We understand certain things. Yeah. There are stuff such as you follow patient X from... A and E to where they are, and you're just looking through the notes or the flow to see is that logical? Is that right? Does that follow guidelines? And you go, well, actually, yeah. In our hospitals that we were looking at, there wasn't that much bad care. There was the, the, the stuff that was localized, which could easily be managed by speaking to the matron and say, we found this in this area. We think it might be going on for a while. Matron was actually, we've got an action plan already. So you knew that the hospital had identified it, they were managing it and you'd actually picked it up so the system was working. So for me, CQC was never a negative thing. It, was, it just helped me understand how hospitals work, how the, there was just ranges of different aspects within the hospital. But it's not something to be frightened of. And I think I'm a lot of us are intimidated, aren't we? We're really intimidated by them. And you've also since then been a nice reviewer. How did so, you get involved with that? This has to do with drugs and alcohol. So, But then there was this new one that came out for liver disease and alcohol and trying to find better ways of preventing people from dying. And so I was involved in the review process of that, uh, looking at recommendations and good practice. So that was based back on the NCPOD reports that were going on. So the NCPOD is the National Confidential Inquiry for the Prevention of Death, and they look at reports throughout the time. And there was one about liver disease. Were patients with liver disease getting scoped quickly enough? And that was probably why there's now an introduction of a, like the cardiac rotor for chest pains. There's now a, a liver rotor or a gastro rotor as well. But we're looking at drugs. And what we found was working as a team, multidisciplinary team, all the research was given to us. We read the research and we made recommendations. But for me, working within the NICE guidelines, Yes, I'd met friends who I still have now and we work in projects together. How important the, the patient's voice was. We couldn't make any decision unless the patient's voice was aware. And it made me realise that sometimes as nurses, we're shooting for the stars when actually we're forgetting the ability to communicate to the service users or non-specialists. The ability to explain it to the service user was the kicker because if we couldn't, it was invalid. We couldn't justify it. I got involved with that simply because there was on NICE, they, they ask every now and again for anyone who's got expertise in A, B, C and D. I put my name down for a few, but once you're in and the project's over, they keep you on a waiting list. So if there's anything else come up or anything that needs adapted, would you be able to review within 28 days? So you're always reviewing new data. Unfortunately, it's gone on hold. Well, fortunately, the other stuff has gone on hold because I've been doing a lot of COVID stuff. So whilst my expertise is not respiratory medicine, other people can definitely chip in and support and change and support. I that. think we hadn't kind of realised how quickly guidelines could be made until yeah. this year. The amount of policy research, the output has just been yeah. almost unbelievable, hasn't it, really? But the research is always going on. That's the thing. Yeah. The independent review, uh, which takes about six to 12 months to do anyway, to, um, to do. With COVID, I think we realised some of those processes can happen quicker. So through your whole of your very varied career, have you got any advice for any student nurses or any newly qualified nurses? 
you've got to crawl before you walk before you run okay so whilst we all want to be ward managers or prescribing for the sake of argument i think taking time to learn consolidate look at the bigger picture needs to happen so yes i'm a prescriber and i know the new curriculum is allowing nurses to consider prescribing earlier but and i say this when i used to teach on the prescribing course the best practice the best prescriber is the one who doesn't prescribe they thought of everything else and actually said the prescription won't work here and you would only know that if you've gone through experience you've read the articles you've worked in different areas you've seen how other people are prescribed so sometimes you just need to crawl your way through a system or walk the running bit will happen and actually running will happen once you find your niche but don't be scared to spend time not chasing that band six but perhaps going to a different hospital yeah doing additional training uh, both of us said that we've moved different units but going to going from one unit to another unit to another unit in a period of three four years then go for your promotion because when you go for your interview you're going to say i've worked here and we did that but then i worked here and did that you're a more viable option but yeah. also you won't have that imposter syndrome you won't feel as if you're under equipped and it takes time for you to feel comfortable in your own shoes or your own clothes and my thing as well was is when i got my band six was i want to walk in a room and then go oh that's good laura's here to help us yeah, I don't want to be that flappy, stressed, barking ordersy person. I don't need to be noisy. I can, you can get things done in the background quietly, ask for help quietly, and the ship doesn't rock. It actually keeps things calm. So you're now Director of Programmes for Mental Health at Middlesex University, Mental Health Programmes there. Have you got any advice for anyone in a leadership position or that wants to move into a leadership position? Definitely, yeah. Um, don't be scared of management. Don't be scared of meetings. What you realise in academia more than anything else is again like the nhs there's lots of cogs that are moving in the background and perhaps get fast get involved in some of those things so when i started my first job in academia again like all of us this is boring this is slow i, I should be running and don't realize that you're doing work while you're doing work and the person who taught me was the lady who was involved in recruitment so she opened the door to recruitment and i learned about recruitment and ucas and how to get people through to interview and then you realize a lot to this and by going and getting involved in in how things run it's a good way of getting on getting an understanding about how universities work now no two universities are the same and perhaps spending time teaching then going into uh, module leadership if you've got the opportunity to do program leadership try and do that but don't rush again because the difference between a lecturer and a senior lecturer is the amount of uh, responsibility you have you're still having to do your marking yeah, yeah the baseline job hasn't changed. Yeah. yeah, so it's the ability to understand how the concepts work. But the other thing I've learned, and this is for every student nurse, every qualified nurse, is don't be scared to make that phone call and ask for help. I think we're scared of showing that we're weak or vulnerable. Oh, we're not weak or vulnerable. Me, from a management point of view, if you were to ring me and say, can I have help on this, means that you need help. That's all it means. I'm not looking for anything. And I know I've actually done that with you, Laura. I've, I've, I've emailed you saying, can I have clarity on this? That's all it is, clarity. And I think if you're comfortable in asking for help, you're on, you're on a winner. Because also you've got that self-awareness, haven't you, to yeah. say, there's this thing in front of me. And if it's clinical or you know, in academia, from a clinical point of view, it's safety, isn't it? Yeah. In this particular clinical situation, I don't know what to do. So from a safety point of view, I've got to get someone that is competent or experienced to help and, and and with academia it's the same isn't it you've got the awareness to know that maybe you don't have all the answers uh, and, email Adrian loads. <laughs> and that's it and that's how what I've always 
thoughts. If I'm missing something, skewed decisions. That comes from the, the diagnostic reasoning course, that if you make a decision with half the information, you've got to make the wrong decision. And I think we've both worked through this COVID bit and the importance of keeping our students involved, up to date with information has been key. Yeah, completely. Um, we've run weekly sessions, checking in with students. I've attended as many meetings as I can, being front of house. How many problems we've solved are alleviated just by being there and supporting those staff. Math. For all of us, no decision should be untieable. And that's where I think a lot of us struggled out, struggle, because, yeah, things are going to have to be change, going to change. In academia, you think nothing's going to change, but COVID has proven we have everything everything yeah. can change in every way that you didn't ever think it could change yeah. and the program still run and we're recruiting students we are great well we haven't we haven't done a formal ceremony for graduation but people are coming out the, the end with their nmc qualification uh in your program and i've had quite a few people that have asked oh did you get redeployed because you know did they shut the universities and redeploy you back to intensive care i think there always wasn't that awareness was there maybe with the general public that this, this is all still going. Our, our programmes are still running. Nothing has... I don't know whether this is fair, but from what you just said, how many times a certain f friend of mine, and I would even say ex-friend of mine, has tried to make me feel guilty not going out to support. Yeah. But when I'm saying, why, why aren't you coming back? Your skills are needed. Well, yes, I have got skills. Yes, they're transferable. Yes, as you all know, they're quite broad. But I've got to look after the students here. I'm managing a team. I'm working... yeah, I, have, I have a job. Yeah. Who, who who will do that job if I just, yeah. if I go? Oh, but anyone can do it. And you realise, well, but I've got a job and I'm, I'm working hard. I'm working efficiently, I believe. If we don't get students through to the end, the conveyor belt stops. And, then, and also then it's not just this year, is it? It's next year. It's the year after. It's the applications. It's if we have a lot of students who need to step off, we need to keep that going because we know out of one certainty in all of this is that we are going to have a lot of nurses leave. Yeah certain roles yeah. and we've got we've got to keep we've got to keep the well it's the conveyor belt isn't it really we've got to keep the universities getting students to qualify and i think contingency planning is really important because i think the nhs has, hasn't contingency planned enough the shortage of nurses we've known about the past 15 years and my sister raised a really good point she was like why does everyone i had to go to a and &E because i was unwell over the summer and the doctor that was assessing me was like oh so you went so where do you work and i just briefly said and she went oh so you must have been redeployed then and I said, oh, no, actually, you know, I'm a lecturer and I did some ITU shifts, but I was trying to juggle my, my norm, you know, my full time job. Went, I just don't understand why the university thinks that's acceptable. And I went and I went back to my sister. and I was really upset after. And she was like, my sister said, why has everyone got this obsession about telling you and nurses what you should all be doing all the time? And they're not thinking about like the average person in the UK has sat inside and watched Netflix. Um, but I think our experience of being academics and senior academics has helped the students not feel normal because they're not going to feel normal but make them feel a part of the system and they understand that what's been going on yeah. how many how many uh, impromptu lessons i've done on immunology mm. i'm not willing to count but it's helping them understand yeah. the role that we that the academics perhaps have done has probably has helped the nhs we won't see it because i think i don't like the word uh, resilience but what we have is supported them through this tricky time. Hopefully when they come out, they will be pretty well rounded, and if not better, better round, because they've experienced the pandemic as well. Yeah, yeah, they've lived it and they've clinically worked in it. Yeah, but they'll never think... forget these skills. No, they won't. So this kind of nicely takes us on to, so where do you see the rest of your career going? Oh, that's again, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. I, I want to continue studying. I've got the bug for studying. So the guy who struggled through his GCSEs, A-levels, who's now been formally diagnosed as dyslexic, still is not scared of studying. So definitely getting on that PhD pathway and moving on. I'm already writing articles, so that keeps me going, doing chapters in books. I would say, is it time for me to settle down and be an academic for the future? I, I don't know. I don't know. I think I'm enjoying it, but I think opportunity knocks, and that's the thing. We're in a profession, nursing, education, where the project's coming up all the time. Yeah, and we're really uh, lucky for that, aren't we? The yeah. variety that I think your CV and your career shows how you can be in one role, but still do yeah. five, ten other things and still be so multifaceted. Yeah, and I think that only comes down from that solid base that I was not forced, but encouraged to have. Well, good luck with your publications and thank all you. of your... Thank you so much for joining me today, Adrian. It's been really good to talk to you. And you too. Thank you.